Are you ready for another fruit? I hope so. We are looking together at kindness this morning, and the best place to start is with God himself. So as with the fruit we've studied so far and those to come, God must always be the starting point. He epitomizes love, joy, peace, patience, and now kindness. In fact, Jesus epitomized all of the fruit while he walked this earth in, uh, in his earthly flesh, but he also epitomizes them even now as he sits at the right hand of God the Father. You might want to read, when you have a chance, the, uh, the devotion we have in the bulletin by Thomas Goodwin, and uh, Goodwin talks actually about that very thing. If we're going to know the truth, beloved, about life and godliness, we always need to start with God. He's got to be the starting point. And by that, I also mean his written word. So let's go there and let's understand kindness. First thing or major truth that we want to put down here is that God's kindness is an act of moral uprightness and generosity that is meant to bring glory to himself and good to others. So I want to unpack that with you as we understand God's kindness one of the, uh, of the nine occurrences in the Greek New Testament of the word that our English Bibles translate uh, kindness, six of them refer to God's kindness with two qualities, and one quality we might call moral uprightness, or virtuous, or righteousness. That's the idea. In Romans 3, verse 12, Paul tells us that the nature of the unbelieving heart is this. All have turned aside. Together they have become depraved. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now the word good is in most English translations, but this actually does not translate the Greek word for good. Rather, it is our word for kindness here. And the same is true with the Greek translation of Psalm 14.3 where Paul took this line. Both Paul and the psalmist had in mind moral uprightness, virtuous. And the parallel phrase, all have become depraved, in that verse in Romans, confirms that meaning. We're talking about moral uprightness. Now, <clears throat> you, know, you notice that God is not mentioned in this verse, in verse 12, but he is mentioned in verse 11. And in verse 11, Paul tells us that no one seeks after God. And when you read these two verses together, the implication is that no one but God is morally upright, which is why no one is interested in seeking him. And just to bolster Paul's ascription to God alone as morally upright, we can turn to the Septuagint. Now, you might not be too familiar with that term. The Septuagint is the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible from which many New Testament writers quote, you would be interested to know. And in those places where the Old Testament, or those places in the Old Testament, I should say, where the Septuagint understood the Hebrew word for good to mean moral uprightness, it went ahead and used the very same word that Paul uses in Galatians 5.22, kindness. Now, why use this word instead of the Greek word for good? Uh, in order to emphasize the relational aspect 
of God's morality or his moral uprightness. You see, God, we know, is by nature kind. He's by nature morally upright. But, but God's people, and everyone for that matter, would only know this by the way he treats them. And God treats them morally, virtuously, ethically. We could turn anywhere in the Greek Old Testament, but the Psalms are particularly helpful here. The psalmist refers again and again in their prayers to the fact that God conducts himself toward his people with morality, moral uprightness. Specifically, he has obligated himself to show his covenant people his loyal love and care. Listen to Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is morally upright in this way. His love is everlasting, his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 106, verse 1 says, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, because he is morally upright, in that his loyal love to his covenant people endures forever. Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is morally upright, because he blesses the man who takes refuge in him. Now you see, we know that God is morally upright by the way he conducts himself toward others. Now, we said that there are only that there were two qualities of God's kindness. We've just considered moral uprightness. We turn our attention now to the other, and that is generosity. Generosity, which also speaks to the way God relates to his people. Let me give you a, a rash of New Testament passages here. In Romans 2, verse 4, we read, Or do you not do you think lightly of the riches of God's generosity and restraint and patience, not knowing that the generosity of God leads you to repentance? Now here Paul shows that God is generous to unbelievers by allowing them time to repent. He makes the same point in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. God's generosity is demonstrated by forgiving sinners. And in Titus 3, verses 4 to 7, by saving them and making them heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Romans chapter 9, verse 23, shows God's generosity toward his redeemed own, the church, by demonstrating his power on their behalf in a fallen world. Listen to the verse. He made known the riches of his generosity to objects of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. That's you and me. Likewise, in Ephesians 2, 7, God shows the boundless riches of his grace in generosity toward us in Christ Jesus. And in Romans eleven twenty two, God God's generosity supplies his grace to us for sanctification. I pointed out a moment ago that God is kind by nature. Kindness is one of his attributes. And that kindness is evident in the way that he relates to people. We're not surprised then to see that the psalmists speak of God's kindness, his moral uprightness, his generosity, not in an abstract way or even in a theological principle, but rather in a relational way how God relates to his creation. And that's because the best way to understand God's kindness and all his attributes is from a relational perspective. It's to be on the receiving end of it. God always acts consistent with his nature. And the only way we know of uh, know his, his nature is by the way he acts and relates to what? 
to us, which, by the way, is confirmed in the Word of God, of course. This is how the creation knows God is kind. He sends rain to water the earth. He dresses the grass. He feeds the sparrow, extends common grace to his enemies. He saves sinners, adopts them as his own possession, matures them, and ultimately glorifies them. We know, don't we, from 1 Corinthians 13.4, that God's kindness is a direct expression of his love. Love is kind. So we're not surprised to learn that God shows his kindness, and he shows his kindness to unbelievers. Make no mistake. We call this common grace, as I said before. Paul speaks of this kindness in Acts 14, in verse 15 and following, where he is evangelizing those in Lystra and Derbe, and he says, Men, we preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone, he he permitted all the nations to go their own way, and yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. This is how God demonstrated his kindness to unbelievers. What a great declaration this is. In fact, in, uh, Paul, in another evangelistic speech in Acts 17, verse 30, he tells his audience in the Areopagus that God overlooked the times of ignorance in order to give more time to people to repent before he judges sin with a vengeance. God has shown kindness to the world by offering its salvation and a great inheritance. Then there's Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden light. And who can forget the declaration of John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God relates to sinners in a morally upright and generous way because that's what God is by nature. And it would be odd if we didn't mention that God shows his kindness also and especially to his covenant people, even though we, we, we know this. There's uh, in Hosea chapter 11, first four verses, a remarkable description that God himself gives of his kind and generous way with Israel in the early years. Listen to this. This is God speaking. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. I bent down and I fed them. This is the way that God relates to his elect. In Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 7, we see 
some similarity, but God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you were saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the boundless riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I want to reemphasize that God, who is kind by nature, demonstrates that by relating to people in morally upright and generous ways, he reveals his kindness. In the words of the late James Boyce, quote, kindness is the attitude God has when he interacts with people. God has a right to insist on our immediate and total conformity to his will. And he could be quite harsh with us in getting us to conform, but he is not harsh. He treats us as a good father might treat a learning child. This is our pattern. If Christians are to show kindness, they must act toward others as God has acted toward them, end quote. And he's right. One more thing I want to say about God's kindness in this first section is that uh, the world uh, is quite opposed to God's kindness. Uh, The way I stated that is that God shows his kindness to an unsympathetic world. You know by now that if kindness is a fruit of the Spirit, only those who have the Holy Spirit indwelling them are able to bear this wonderful fruit. Non-Christians do not have this fruit. Wait a minute. Are you saying that unbelievers cannot be kind? Because I I know a lot of people who aren't Christians who are kind. Well, I'm saying that unbelievers don't possess this fruit without the indwelling Holy Spirit. Well, then what do they have? They have a vestige of this fruit. A vestige, a leftover, the ruins of a perfect attribute. Biblical kindness describes how humanity was supposed to relate to each other before the fall. They lost this ability after the fall. So what do fallen individuals have now? Well, they have a fallen version of kindness, a fallen version of this fruit. It's really counterfeit, completely different by nature. And we made that case with the past fruit that the difference is not a matter of degree. We, we, I think it's important to, to reiterate that. It's not that God's kindness is the same as the world's, only to a greater degree and more intensified. People often think that way, but it's not true. No, it, it's of a different nature altogether. What the world knows is merely a counterfeit kindness, no question about it. In fact, Paul alludes to the world's counterfeit kindness in 1 Corinthians 15.33, This is very interesting. In a quote from a worldly proverb that originated with the famous Greek poet and playwright Menander in the 3rd century B.C., his comedy, Face, had a line in it that captured the world's concept of morality and immorality then. And it became proverbial by Paul's day. Here it is. Bad company corrupts good morals. The word translated good in this verse is the exact same word for kindness in Galatians 5.22. 
and the context would suggest then that it's referring to that quality of morality. There was, you see, a sense in Meander's day, uh, Menander's day rather, and in Paul's day, as there is in our day, if you can believe it, of what morality and, gener and generosity is from an unbeliever's point of view. But it's no more than a corrupted version of the genuine article. And it's very important that you understand that. It's noteworthy that our Greek word for kindness is never used with believers in the New Testament, but it is used with them outside the New Testament. Paul's non-Christian contemporaries called princes and nobles morally upright and magnanimous. And they saw this as a virtue also of just honest folk. Unbelievers have their own code of ethics, such as it is, and the one who was kind conducted himself according to a, a rule of honesty, had good morals, and was generous with others. So the New Testament took this word from the world's context and, if you will, redeemed it, giving it back the true meaning of godly kindness. So make no mistake, the nature of worldly kindness does not reveal God or represent him, or testify to him in any way, or glorify him as the psalmist did in their praise psalms. Rather, worldly kindness has the underpinnings of selfishness. Really? Selfishness? Yes. If the non-Christian is not looking for recognition of his kind acts, little pat on the back there, he's looking to feel good about himself. And that can also sound good. Oh, it makes me so happy to help people. And I feel so good when I can be kind to someone. The problem is that those feelings should be the byproduct, not the motivating force of kindness. But it is with this kind of kindness. The reason for being kind to people is not to have a feather that I can stick in my cap, or my own happiness, or my own peace of mind. If any genuine believer buys into that, he'll never be kind to his enemy or show kindness to those who persecute him. Where's the peace in that? Well, the reason we believers are kind is to glorify God and serve neighbor. That's the motivation. We want to reveal the kindness of our the kindness that God has led us to in Christ. Worldly kindness will never lead anyone to the benevolent Savior because it's not done in his name. Are you seeing how the two differ here? One is situational. The other is always operational because it is grounded in a relationship that never changes. And that alone makes all the difference in the world. Let me say it this way. Believers and unbelievers can perform the exact same acts of kindness, even side by side, but only that which believers do counts in God's eyes because it is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in them and will necessarily testify to God's kindness. Kindness out of Christ and kindness in Christ may appear similar, but they are rooted in completely different soils, beloved. Unbelievers cannot practice kindness in Christ. The best that they can do is enhance the quality of their bad fruit. And the same goes for religion. 
the unsaved religious try to live by Jesus' teaching to be kind, right? And so they turn the other cheek. They go the extra mile. And they give people their coat and then the shirt off their back. And after that, they have only succeeded in enhancing their own worldly kindness. That's it. You see, an unbeliever who applies scripture is like an athlete who takes a performance-enhancing drug. He only enhances his natural fallen abilities. That's it. And he may be convinced that scripture makes what he has better. But biblical kindness is not like this. This fruit does not make what you already have better. It replaces what you had with something better upon conversion. Christians practice kindness with different motives, different goals, and as a representative of Christ. A believer's goal in showing kindness is to honor and to glorify God, not to call attention to himself or to any organization for that matter, nor do we show kindness simply for the sake of being kind. When I, was, uh, when I, first be, when I became a Christian in high school, let me, let me start it this way, I evangelized my best friend uh, who said that he had trusted Christ for salvation. I found out years later that he had fallen away from the faith. <clears throat> but I remember having a theological discussion with him at one point, and he asked me, do we always have to do everything in Jesus' name? Is it necessary that every time I help people, I must let them know that I do it because I'm a Christian? And what I do is a reflection of God. Is there ever an instance, Bob, where we're simply kind to people just for the sake of being kind? It was an honest question. The answer I gave is the one I still give today. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Who are we, beloved? We're Christians. We imitate our God. We're to be like Christ. Everything we do must be for that reason. Our good work is meant to bring people to the truth. So says Jesus in Matthew, Matthew 5. You are the light of the world, he says. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In Acts chapter 3, Luke records Peter healing a lame man. And in verse 9, he tells us that Peter's goal, or tells us what Peter's goal was in healing this man. All the people saw the lame man walking and praising God. That's the goal. It was that he might praise God. He wasn't praising Peter. Isn't that interesting? And this gave Peter an opportunity to credit Jesus with the healing and so present the gospel before a crowd of Jews. Listen as I read on. Verse 11, while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the portico named Solomon's, completely astonished. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why are you staring at us as though by our own power or goodness we made him walk? 
It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see now. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. That's awesome. The story doesn't end there, of course. The news of this man's healing spread throughout Jerusalem and reached the ears of the Pharisees, which gave Peter and John another opportunity to preach to them. That's recorded in Acts chapter 4. Is it any wonder then why Peter would later write in his first epistle to the churches of Asia, chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, Beloved, I urge you as foreigners and strangers, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your acts of kindness, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. No, no wonder at all. Peter's word excellent, by the way, in this passage, means moral goodness of the highest kind, a very noble and admirable goodness, which was important in Peter's day because the government viewed Christians early on as rebels, insurrectionists, worshiping another king than Caesar and so on. So their flawless acts of kindness toward others, their moral uprightness and generosity within the community showed off Jesus. Peter also indicates that the kind deeds of Christians are part of what God uses to call people to salvation so that when it actually comes time for him to save someone, that new convert will, upon his conversion, remember the kind acts that he received from other believers in the name of Christ, and he will praise God. Maybe that happened to you. One final example is Paul. He instructed the Roman Christians in the later part of chapter 20, verse 12, Romans 20, verse 12, how to carry on with unbelievers in a way that would glorify God. He quoted from Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22, and he says this, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. It's a familiar verse. You've heard it many times before. The verse has been variously understood, but I think the most likely view seems to take the burning coals as a reference to conviction that leads to repentance, and the tenor of the verse is evangelistic. So when believers are kind to those who persecute them, their persecutors will be ashamed of their wicked behavior, and the hope is repent. Now, this kind of behavior of Christians demonstrated and commanded by Peter and Paul reveals the type of kindness that, that escapes the world. What we said about motives behind worldly love months ago from Matthew 7 also applies to kindness. Unbelievers are kind to those who are kind to them, their, their family, those who are like-minded with them and, and don't hinder them in any way. But if Christians are to be perfect as their Heavenly Father is perfect, then they must show kindness as He does. And His kindness extends even to His enemies. Show To show acts of kindness for reasons other than strictly to imitate our kind God and to reveal him to others for an opportunity to evangelize is frankly not good. It isn't. It's not only a missed opportunity, but it separates 
Listen to this. It separates kindness from the one who is kind. We cannot understand kindness apart from God. Well, that uh, brings us to the second section I, I want to address with you, and that is that biblical kindness is God's kindness channeled through Christians that brings glory to God and good to others. What I'm saying here is that biblical kindness is God's kindness, and it is ours, which the Holy Spirit grants to us. We've mentioned that God's kindness is one of his attributes. Well, we point out here that it's one of his communicable attributes. That means that God shares it with us. God doesn't share all his attributes with us, but this one he does that we might display it. It was clearly evident in the apostles. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 6, Paul and his fellow apostles commended themselves as servants of God in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness. But not just the apostles. God commands all Christians to practice this fruit in the same way that Jesus did. Listen to Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Be kind, because God was kind to you. Christians have, Christians have a willingness to serve one's neighbor, you see, to be moral and to be magnanimous in their dealings with everyone. And that allows them to be useful, helpful, considerate, and always in an agreeable way, even, as one commentator said, with a smile. Now here's something that should encourage us all if we can get, pa get past the conviction of it. By the time of the second century, the tide for the church was changing in their favor. It was turning in their favor. Rome was, was accepted, accepting of Christians rather than persecuting and killing them now. In just a short 100 years after the 2nd century, 3rd century, Emperor Constantine literally made Christianity the state religion of Rome in one night. I have no doubt that this <clears throat> unique turn of events was due in large part to the way the church loved their neighbor and especially each other, how they showed kindness both in moral uprightness and generosity. About 133 A.D., Aristides, a Greek teacher of philosophy, made a defense of Christianity to Emperor Hadrian. It gives a glimpse of how the Christians practiced the fruit of the Spirit and how their practice of the fruit caused, I believe, their popularity. Here's what Aristides said. Quote, this is a long quote. Speaking to Emperor Hadrian, he said, Oh, Emperor, Christ died and was buried. And the Christians say that after three days he rose and ascended to heaven. And then these twelve disciples went forth into the kingdoms of the world, telling of his greatness with all humility and sobriety. Whence they Whence they who still serve the righteousness of his preaching are called Christians who are well known 
Now the Christians, O King, have the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ himself graven on their hearts, and they observe, looking for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. They commit neither adultery nor fornication, nor do they bear false witness. They do not deny a despot, I'm sorry, deny a, a deposit nor covet any man's goods. They honor father and mother, they love their neighbors, they give right judgment, they do not worship idols in the form of man. They do not unto others that which they should not have done unto themselves. They they comfort such as wrong them and make friends of them. They labor to do good to their enemies. They are meek and gentle. As for their servants or handmaids or their children, if any of them has any, they persuade them to become Christians for the love that they have towards them. And when they have become so, they call them without distinction brethren. They despise not the widow and grieve not the orphan. He that that hath distributeth liberally to him that hath not. If they see a stranger, they bring him under their roof and rejoice over him as if it were their own brother. For they call themselves brethren, not after the flesh, but after the Spirit and in God. And if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if it's possible that he may be delivered, they deliver him. And if there is among them a man that is poor and needy, and they have not an abundance of necessities, they fast two or three days that they may supply the need with the necessary food. For Christ's sake, they are ready to lay down their lives. End quote. Mm, what a remarkable testimony. It's from a secular, a secular official. As a result, the saying was spread around by this time, quote, behold how they love one another, end quote. Seventy or so years later, the theologian and church father, Tertullian, from North Africa, remarked that because Christians carried on this way and their kindness was so stunning for pagans, the pagans started calling the Christians not Christani, but Crestani. Crestani is the word Crestatos, which is the word Paul uses in Galatians 5.22 for kindness. Crestani means the kind one. I wonder how the church today will be remembered in another 200 years, should the Lord tarry. I wonder how we will be remembered. Well, it's time then in the third section to sum up what we've said in a, in a working definition of kindness. And I would say that kindness is this. It is that fruit of the Spirit in us that enables us to serve our neighbor in a truly morally upright and magnanimous way that is for his best interest to the glory of God. This is God's kindness that we show the world. 
moral uprightness, generous. Ben it benefits the person. It brings glory to God. Every kind way about us, every effort made for the well-being of another, every care and concern shown to others is an imitation of God's acts of kindness. And our motivation to be kind should be the to reveal our kind God to those who need to know him and be reminded of him. Well, that brings us then to some application. Just a, a few things here before we bring this to a close. I would say in light of what we've said, that practicing God's kindness preserves our ministry. That's how important this is. Please don't underestimate the fruit of the Spirit, kindness. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6. Give no reason for taking offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God in kindness. Showing kindness toward people in our individual ministries to lead, to, lends credibility to our ministry. Showing them kindness lends credibility to our ministry. We keep our ministry from being un, unnaturally offensive. What do I mean by unnatural? Well, ministry done right will, will certainly incur offense. There's no two ways about it. We carry an offensive message. But it's the word itself that should offend and nothing about ourselves. Think about that. That's very important. There should be nothing about us, our tone, our manner, our scent, our presence that should offend people. Showing kindness prevents offense over aspects of, of our character that should never be offensive. So kindness preserves our ministry. It lends credibility to our message. Number two, practicing God's kindness is not always appealing to believers, much less the world. Hmm, really? Believers? Yes. Does that shock you? It speaks to the immature state of American Christianity, really. I want to stress at this point that being kind in the way that God wants us to be is not welcome by those Christians who don't know their Bibles well. Immature Christians. No matter how long they've been Christians and how long they've been going to church. Now, we would expect the world to repudiate our, our kind advances, explaining the gospel to them when, they, when we have a chance. The New Testament is clear that we will be persecuted for the faith. That's understandable. But Christians having a hard time with this? Yes, many find it difficult to put on godly kindness, to be morally upright and virtuous as well as generous, believe it or not. For example, they are quite unkind to unbelievers when they say nothing in a moment that is ripe for evangelism. It's also quite unkind for them to give unbelievers a watered-down gospel, to leave out repentance, the wrath of God, offense of a holy God, all because they don't want to offend the hearer. They will not engage in destroying the fortresses of people's ideologies, as Paul calls us clearly to do in 2 Corinthians 5, in our evangelism, it's unkind for them to lead unbelievers to embrace an incomplete gospel. 
It's unkind for them not to contend for the faith and expose error in situations where unbelievers have put on sheep's clothing and spread error in the church. Jude had something to say about that, as did Peter and Paul. Doctrinal purity of the church is essential to its health, and we need to contend for it aggressively. For this brings glory to God, and it benefits the church. It's kind. It's unkind of them to welcome apostates into their home and thereby help them propagate error. That's John, 2 John 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him greeting participates in his evil deeds. Yikes. Put positively, it's kind to resist apostates. It's kind to the church, kind to them even, whether they think so or not. And it's also honoring to Christ. It's kind to obey Jesus and to rebuke a brother who carries around unrepentant sin. It's kind not to entertain gossip, to stop those who try and gossip to you, and to rebuke them if they don't stop. It's the kind thing to do to expose error in the church and not allow it to propagate there. Jude 3 says, I felt it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. It's kind to judge other Christians functionally after removing the log from your eye, Matthew 7. And it's kind to speak the truth in love, kind to seek the forgiveness of those we've offended, and forgive those who ask for our forgiveness. It's kind to extend help to the members of our church before we help unbelievers. Oh, yes. Church first, always. Church first, always. Paul said in Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10, we'll get there. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us be kind to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially. Number three, practicing God's kindness is evangelism. God has provided Christ to bear the wrath for sinners and thereby save them. Gospel calls people everywhere to embrace the kindness of God. A rejection of the gospel is a rejection of God's kindness, Romans 11.22. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Oh, beloved, our message to the world is this, that God is kind. He is kind. God's kindness and salvation, finally, number four, is a great incentive to mature. Great incentive to mature. Read in 1 Peter 2, verse 3, Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and evil and all slander, And like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted of the Lord's kindness. 
If you receive a large sum of money, beloved, to attend a top university to pursue a particular field of interest that the donor believes in and believes in you, the greatest way you can show your appreciation for his generosity is to graduate at the top of your class and go on to be successful. It's to do the best you can. That's how you would show thankfulness to his generosity. Similarly, if you have received the kindness of God in the riches of his saving grace, the greatest way you can be thankful to God is to be faithful to him in all that you do, especially in showing off his kindness. And our Father in God, we are grateful for the ability we have in Christ to practice this very important fruit of the Spirit. We pray that you would impress upon our hearts these truths that we have studied together in your presence as a form of worship, and that as we depart, you would keep them in the fore of our brains, reminding us constantly of how important it is that we practice moral uprightness and generosity, first to the, to the saints and then to the world in hopes that they would come to know you, to know that you are God, and to know your saving grace. We pray, O oh God, that you will find us this week and until we meet again, steadfast in this, persevering in kindness for your honor, for your glory, and for the benefit of our neighbor. In Jesus' name we pray.